millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Made by Podster. Hello, and welcome to Tracing Darkness. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and today I'm going to tell you a remarkable story from a small town in Canada. A story about two people who fall in love at first sight, but end up in a bitter and bloody custody battle over their young children. Before we get started, I should warn you that this episode contains detailed descriptions of murders. The Harrison family consisted of parents Bridget and Bill Harrison and their adult son, Caleb. The family lived in Canada in a city... I'm Lainey Hobbs, and today I'm telling you about the triple murder from Kirkanumi. Before we begin, this podcast contains details of murder and violence against adults and children. If you are in any way likely to be affected by such accounts, please consider carefully whether you wish to proceed. And if you do, settle in for quite an odd story from a part of the world not usually associated with such gruesome acts. Vaco was originally from Savonia, a southern region in Finland closer to Russia than Sweden, but had apparently moved southwest to Kirkenumi as a child. Barrett, on the other hand, had lived in Kirkenumi all her life. At the age of 18, Vaco became a parent for the first time. His eldest son was born in 1966, and a few years later came his second. Vaco and the mother of his children had been married at one point but divorced after a while. Then Vaco met and married Barrett. Barrett had also had serious relationships in the past. 
She had at least one ex-husband and had also been with another man with whom she had had twins who were about nine or ten years old at the time of the murders. Vico bought a plot of land for himself and Barrett in the village of Vols near Kirkanumi, in a remote location near a forest. The land was sold to them by a man who lived on the neighboring plot. The distance between the two properties was just over 300 feet, so the houses were not right next to each other. They lived in a very sparsely populated area, and to this day, there are not really any services left in the village, and the Yersterby Road that partly runs through Vols has no streetlights, so if you drive there at night, it really feels like being in the middle of a forest. Vaco bought the land in 1987, and two years later, the house was completed and they moved in. Barrett and Vaco's house was a single-story red brick house. It's a bit difficult to say how smart or modern the house was at the time, but from pictures of the house, it looks like a lot of effort was put into renovating it to a nicely decorated, neat and well-maintained condition. In some old newspaper articles, the house was even described as luxurious, so it was certainly on the pleasant side by the standards of the time, or at least by the standards of the locals. Both Baco and Barrett had brand new fancy cars, and Barrett's car even had customized license plates. The house was completed when the murders took place, but other buildings were still under construction on the site. Vaco, who was described in many sources as a building contractor, had also set up a transport business, which was apparently doing well. After the house was completed, Vaco had started building a warehouse of some kind on the same plot of land as the house, where he could store the equipment belonging to his company. In addition to Vaco, Barrett and their little baby, Barrett's twins from the previous relationship, also lived with a couple, but the children apparently saw their father regularly. Vaco's sons were already grown up and had left home. Not long after the murders, Vaco's sister gave an interview to the crime magazine Alibi, where she talked about her brother, his character, and his family life. According to her, Vaco was very happy in his relationship with Barrett, and this happiness bothered some people. According to her, someone or some people could not tolerate the family's happiness, and the birth of Barrett and Vaco's daughter Jessica was therefore the last straw that triggered the anger of one or more people who had resented the harmonious family. However, not everyone saw it in quite the same way. In 2011, the Finnish tabloid Ilta Sanomat reported that some relatives of both parties had made it clear that they did not find their relationship appropriate. Vaco's reputation for being aggressive and awkward has been reported in various media since his death. According to interviews with Vaco's sister, Vaco was a fair and honest man who took great care to do things properly and keep things straight. According to his sister, he did not tolerate half-truths in any matter. In an interview with the Helsingen Sanomat newspaper in 2001, a detective involved in the case described Vaco as a tough businessman who, for example, did not hesitate to go personally around to people's houses in the area to collect debts related to his business. According to the police officer, Many local residents were also annoyed by Vago playing the role of what one might term a civilian sheriff. 
For example, he used to take every drunk driver he met to the police station himself, and he intervened in almost every offense he observed. It is quite possible that this kind of behavior may have annoyed some people. According to those closest to him, it was precisely Vago's uncompromising and arrogant nature that had enabled him to set up a successful business, even though he had never been to school or studied anything. Vago's relationship with his two adult sons was discussed much in the media, but Vago's sister said in an interview that there had been arguments between the father and the boys and that they were not on good terms. Vago was annoyed that the boys had managed to get themselves into debt at a very young age, and in connection with their debts, the boys apparently sometimes asked their father for money. It is therefore quite reasonable to assume that Vago had had conflicts with many people in his life and that his temper may have been a problem for some. There is very little information about Barrett, Vago, and their baby daughter Jessica's last days, or at least not much about that period has been made public. At midday on Saturday, July 28th, it is known at least that Barrett, Jessica, and Barrett's twins were at home. The twins were supposed to have been at home all day, but had spontaneously decided to go to their father's house to spend the night. It is unclear who came up with this idea and whether Barrett brought her children to their father's house or whether their father came to pick them up from Barrett and Vago. However, there is no real information about how much time the children were to spend with their father. It was July and the children were on summer holiday, so it is possible that they would be staying with him for more than just one night. Vago's eldest son has shared that he came to visit his father on that Saturday to return a drill he had borrowed, but his father was not at home, so he left the drill on the kitchen table. Vago's son had been there when Barrett spoke to her twins about going to their father's house for the night, but he quickly left when his father was not home. began to take a turn for the worse. The main problems in the relationship were caused by a lack of money and Caleb's drinking. Over the years, Caleb had developed an alcohol problem that he could no longer fully control. The alcohol and money problems often escalated into arguments, at least one of which ended in violence in 2005. Melissa called the police from the family home and said that Caleb had grabbed her, held her down, and punched her repeatedly in the head. When police arrived, Caleb said he had defended himself against Melissa's attack. To prove it, Caleb showed scratches that he said were the result of Melissa attacking him after an argument. The police ended up arresting Caleb and he spent three days in jail. He was later charged and convicted of domestic violence. Caleb's friends and family were angry and disappointed in Caleb, but some found it hard to believe Melissa's account of what had happened. Melissa had been caught in some unusual lies in the past. A year before the violent argument, Melissa had told Caleb and his parents that she had ovarian cancer and that she had had an ovary removed without them noticing. Everyone was suspicious of the news, but didn't dare ask any more questions. Later, when Melissa began to stumble over her own lies, family members asked her directly if she had lied about her cancer diagnosis and surgery. She cowered and admitted that she had lied. She didn't know why, 
In reality, Melissa had had ovarian cysts, which can be a painful but often quite harmless condition. Caleb's family was astonished by Melissa's need to lie about something as serious as cancer. After Caleb was convicted of domestic violence, his and Melissa's marriage ended and Caleb moved back in with his parents. Melissa wouldn't let Caleb see his children, which was extremely difficult for him. He had hoped to give his children a normal family life, but now he wasn't even allowed to see or have contact with them. Caleb had been open about his drinking problem, had sought help, and admitted that it had played a big part in the end of his and Melissa's marriage. However, Caleb was unable to stop drinking and appeared to use alcohol to alleviate the depression that followed the divorce and his inability to be with his children. A month after Caleb and Melissa broke up, Caleb went out with some friends. He had been drinking heavily during the evening but got behind the wheel of his car anyway when it was time to go home. Caleb's friends knew he had been drinking a lot and refused to get in the car with them. I hope they also tried to take Caleb's keys from him, but I don't know if they really tried. The journey home didn't end well when Caleb, in his drunken stupor, crashed into a taxi with four passengers. The taxi driver did not survive the collision, and Caleb and the four young passengers in the taxi were seriously injured. They were also all nearly killed. Both cars caught fire, and they barely escaped the burning vehicles. Caleb's friends, who had refused Caleb a lift only moments before, were still on their way home near the scene of the accident and got the injured Caleb out of the car. The drunk driving and the fact that the accident had claimed the life of another person had really taken its toll on Bridget and Bill, and of course, Caleb. Caleb was treated in the hospital and was subsequently charged with drunk driving and manslaughter. He was released on bail to await sentencing on the condition that he live with his parents and stop drinking alcohol. While Caleb was recovering from his rather serious injuries at his parents' home, Melissa reported to the police that she had been assaulted in the yard of her home. According to Melissa's report, she had been in the backyard of her home when she was unexpectedly attacked. Melissa knew the identity of the perpetrator. She claimed it was Caleb. When the police arrived at Caleb's home, Caleb didn't know whether to cry or laugh he had been sitting with his parents for the past few days and was barely able to walk, although he was leaning on a cane. Caleb told police that Melissa was apparently unaware that he had been in a car accident and had sustained serious injuries. There was no way Caleb could have attacked Melissa, but Melissa didn't stop there. She reported several similar incidents and said that her home had been invaded or attacked. I'm not sure if Melissa was still claiming that Caleb had attacked her. In any event, the police hardly took it seriously. In fact, as more and more reports came in, the police didn't take Melissa's claim seriously at all. Later, several officers said they were almost certain that Melissa was lying about the attacks for some reason. When Caleb and Melissa went to court to fight for custody of the children, a number of allegations of abuse emerged. Melissa claimed that Caleb was violent towards her and had broken into her home on several occasions, while Caleb said that Melissa was lying and trying to set him up and make him look bad so that he wouldn't get custody of the children. 
The outcome of the court case was that Melissa got primary custody of the children, but Caleb was allowed to see them twice a week and every other weekend. The custody agreement stipulated, among other things, that Caleb would continue to live with his parents and abstain from alcohol. I am not sure whether these details about access rights also applied to Caleb's parents. I am also not sure what Melissa's attitude towards Caleb's parents was at this time. In any case, she later turned against them and did everything she could to prevent them from seeing the children. At the same time as the custody battles, both Melissa and Caleb found new partners. For Caleb, the new relationship provided a sense of security while he waited to find out what sentence he would receive for drunk driving and manslaughter. Caleb had met a woman called Corinda, who fortunately for Caleb, got on very well with his parents. Corinda and Caleb's mom became close in a very short space of time. Like Caleb, Corinda herself had two children from a previous relationship. Melissa had met her new partner, Christopher Fattore, online and quickly began a serious relationship with him. Christopher didn't have any children of his own, so he immediately took in Melissa's children as if they were his own and acted as a father figure to them during the weeks that they weren't with Caleb. Christopher, Melissa's new boyfriend, worked as a doorman at various bars, as a chef at a Hooters restaurant, and occasionally as a sort of janitor. Christopher quickly moved in with Melissa and the couple had a wedding after only six months of dating, though not an official wedding, as Melissa and Caleb hadn't finalized their divorce. They had assumed that after the original divorce petition, the divorce would be finalized once they had been separated for two years. However, this was not the case, so Melissa and Christopher could not formally marry. Over the next few years, Melissa and Christopher had four children together, making Melissa a very young mother of six. Although Christopher and Melissa's relationship wasn't always the happiest, for example, they were often short of money, they agreed on one thing. They both hated Caleb more than anything else. Christopher created a Facebook page to let people know about Caleb's drinking and driving. However, many of Christopher's Facebook posts showed that he wasn't interested in Caleb's crime. He just wanted to make fun of him. In one picture of Caleb, he drew devil's teeth and in a speech bubble, he wrote, give me a beer and the keys to mommy's Mercedes. Christopher and Melissa were sure that Caleb's company would be bad for Caleb and Melissa's children together, and they would do everything they could to prevent Caleb from getting joint custody of them, which Caleb still wanted. However, Melissa and Christopher were disappointed. A judge awarded Caleb joint custody, and Melissa had to let the children live with Caleb half of the time. Caleb still lived with his parents, and they decided together that he should stay there, at least until they knew what his sentencing would be. The trial had dragged on, and Caleb kept thinking about a possible conviction. Bridget and Bill, who loved their grandchildren dearly and wanted to spend as much time with them as possible, had decided that they would seek custody of the children if Caleb went to prison. Needless to say, Melissa was against this. She believed that visitation rights should only go to the children's parents and that grandparents should not be involved. When Caleb was finally sentenced in March 2009 after a two-year wait to 18 months in prison for drunk driving and manslaughter, the judge ordered that custody of Caleb's children be temporarily transferred to Caleb's parents, the grandparents. 
The judge felt it was important that the children's relationship with their father's side was maintained while he was in prison. Melissa was not happy about this. Melissa had started slandering Bill and Bridget even before Caleb went to prison. Melissa claimed that the grandparents had mistreated and perhaps even abused the children. According to Melissa, Bill and Bridget had also been mean and behaved inappropriately towards her. However, Bill and Bridget's story of what happened was different. According to them, Melissa was rarely willing to bring the children to them or Caleb when it was their turn to be with the children. The judge had already had to give Melissa a strict order in 2008 to honor the custody agreements. Social workers and police officers who had investigated Melissa's allegations of abuse had also interviewed Caleb and Melissa's children and asked them about Melissa's claims. Based on the interviews, they suspected that Melissa had asked her children to make up stories about their grandparents and that the children's accounts did not seem credible. Melissa and Christopher were now under closer scrutiny than ever before. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was hard for Caleb's parents that he was imprisoned. However, they were pleased that Caleb's sentence was light and that the judge had taken into account, among other things, the fact that Caleb had minor children and that Caleb had complied with the court's sobriety order while awaiting sentencing. On April 16, 2009, about a month after Caleb had started serving his sentence, Bridget and Bill seemed to be having a day like any other. They had both gone to work early in the morning, and Bridget had told her husband that she would work late into the evening, so Bill didn't have to wait for her. After work, Bill had gone out for takeout and spent the evening eating dinner in front of the television. When Bridget finally got home from a long day at work just before 9 p.m., she was surprised to find the house in darkness. Bill didn't usually go to bed so early, and Bridget didn't think her husband would leave the house once it was dark. Bridget went into the house and found the TV on. Bill's takeout was on the coffee table, but he was nowhere to be seen. Bridget called her husband, 
checked to see if he was in the bedroom and wondered why all the lights were off. When Bridget noticed that the door to one of the bathrooms in the house was locked, she became worried. Bill hadn't answered her calls and she began to fear that something had happened to him and that he couldn't open the bathroom door. When Bridget managed to break open the bathroom door, she found her husband on the floor. Bridget called 911 and calmly told them that she had found her husband on the bathroom floor and that he was unresponsive to speech and touch. She said that because Bill was lying in a slightly awkward position next to the toilet seat, she couldn't move him herself. When the paramedics arrived, they told Bridget that Bill had died. There was nothing more they could do to save him. Bill did not undergo a full autopsy, but the coroner's inquest found that death was caused by a sudden cardiac arrhythmia. The coroner noticed red scratches and abrasions on Bill's neck and believed they came from Bill's necklace. For some reason, Bill had removed his necklace before he died. Although the coroner didn't think there was anything suspicious about the abrasions, he thought it would be a good idea to take some photographs. The coroner's examination also revealed that Bill's sternum was broken and that he had a bruise on the back of his head. According to the coroner, Bill could have sustained these injuries when he fell. However, Bridget thought it was strange that Bill had locked the bathroom door when he was home alone. There had to be something not quite right, she thought. But at the same time, the coroner's explanation seemed plausible because Bill had previously had high blood pressure, and a blood pressure monitor was also found in the bathroom, which Bill had allegedly taken with him. Some painkillers were also found in the toilet. According to the coroner, it was possible that Bill had suddenly felt unwell and had gone to the toilet, where he had taken his blood pressure and painkillers. According to the police and the coroner, there was nothing suspicious about Bill's death. Bridget began organizing Bill's funeral and tried to tell Melissa and her two grandchildren about Bill's death. When Bridget visited the children at school, she learned that the children had gone on a trip. Bridget hadn't been told anything about the trip, which didn't surprise her. Melissa didn't tell her anything about the children's lives. The trip was fine with Bridget as long as Melissa made sure the children were back on the agreed date, but that didn't happen. A few days after Bill's death, it was discovered that Melissa, Christopher, and all the children had disappeared. Their house was empty and no one had heard from them for days. A judge granted Bridget temporary custody of her grandchildren, which led to a warrant being issued for the grandchildren and Melissa being suspected of kidnapping them. Bridget informed the police investigating the abduction about the problems between her family and Melissa and about the fact that her husband had died suddenly on the day Melissa and the children disappeared. The questioning police officer had subsequently said that he could not draw any parallels between the two incidents. Three months after the children disappeared, Caleb was released on parole. He moved in with his mom and together they started looking for his children. A few more months passed before Melissa, Christopher, and the children finally turned up in November. They had settled in a small town of a few hundred people and were turning up everywhere under false identities. They had been discovered when Christopher had accidentally paid his rent with a check bearing his real name. Melissa was arrested and charged with the abduction of the children and the children she had with Caleb now moved in with him and Bridget. 
Melissa was quickly released on bail, but her release came with strict conditions. She was not allowed to contact or see her children unsupervised. In April 2010, Melissa and Christopher violated a court order when they suddenly appeared in the yard of Caleb and Bridget's house. Christopher knocked on the door and tried to give Bridget a letter, but she refused to take it. When Caleb realized Melissa was in the car, he called the police. The police arrested Melissa and she spent three nights in jail. A judge had ordered the abduction charges against Melissa to be heard in court on April 22nd. This was also to determine whether Caleb and Bridget should have permanent custody of the children. Bridget was due to testify in court and had prepared for her speech, which she would begin with the phrases, some people believe in coincidences, some people don't. She was probably referring to the way her husband had died on the same day that Melissa had disappeared with the children. However, Bridget never made it to court to read her carefully prepared speech. On April 21st, the day before the trial was due to begin, Bridget's eight-year-old grandson came home to find her lying at the foot of the stairs. The distraught boy had run to a neighbor who had called an ambulance. When the paramedics arrived, they found that Bridget could no longer be saved and pronounced her dead. Unlike Bill's death a year earlier, Bridget's death was considered suspicious from the start. The very first theory of the police and paramedics was that Bridget had fallen down the stairs. However, Bridget's body was in an unusual position. Bridget was found lying with her head resting on the bottom step and the rest of her body on the floor, not on the stairs. There were some bruises on both her neck and face. Her family did not believe that Bridget could have ended up in this position if she had actually fallen down the stairs. When Bridget's body was transported for further examination, a man named Michael Palanin joined the investigation. Michael worked as the head of the department and immediately noticed that within a year, there had been two suspicious deaths in the Harrison family home. Michael pointed out that, according to photographs and reports, scratches and bruises had been found on Bill's body, but had not been examined in detail. He had wanted to re-examine Bill's body, but this was no longer possible, as Bill had been cremated. Although a new post-mortem could not be carried out, Bill's cause of death was changed to undetermined, largely due to pressure from Michael. As for Bridget, her case and the available evidence had again been presented to homicide investigators, but they decided not to pursue it any further. When the decision was later questioned and an internal investigation carried out, it was not clear who had ultimately made the decision. However, this did not mean that the death was not investigated at all. The case was left to ordinary police officers who were assigned to investigate the cause of death according to normal procedure in cooperation with the coroner. However, Bridget's cause of death was never established and the case remained open. It was possible that Bridget had fallen down the stairs and died from injuries sustained in the fall, including broken ribs and blows to the head. On the other hand, it was also possible that the small fractures and bruises on her neck and face indicated that Bridget had been strangled. Investigators never settled on either conclusion, and the cause of death remains undetermined. The police carried out a search of the house and found that there were no signs of forced entry or a struggle in the house. As Bridget's bag and phone were found next to Bridget's body, and as Bridget was wearing shoes, the police's strongest theory was that Bridget had been out for a walk and had tripped or slipped on the stairs. 
The police questioned some of the suspects, and among them, Caleb was the main suspect. The police had heard that Bridget and Caleb had not always been on good terms. The relationship had become strained after Caleb had been released from prison. Caleb said during the interview that his suspicions had turned to Melissa and Christopher. Caleb found it suspicious that his mother had died under unclear circumstances just one day before the trial, where the charges against Melissa and the issue of custody were to be heard. The police agreed and called Melissa and Christopher in for questioning. Many police officers later said that when it became clear that Caleb had a clear alibi for Bridget's death, interest in the case waned. Caleb had been at work all day, and this could be confirmed. Melissa and Christopher's statements were not fully corroborated. For example, the police did not check their phone records or confirm their alibis. This was because they were not questioned as suspects, but as witnesses. During the interview, Melissa said she had heard that the police had already pointed the finger at Caleb in connection with his mother's death. However, she also claimed she did not want to suggest that Caleb had killed his mother. During his questioning, Christopher also suggested that Caleb had a history of violence and that the police should focus their attention on him. After two weeks of investigation, the case was closed and the police concluded that Bridget's death could not have been caused accidentally. The loss of his parents was hard on Caleb, whose life started to go downhill again. He broke off his relationship with Corinda, despite the fact that they had already been through a lot of hardship together, including Caleb serving time while they had been dating. Custody proceedings had been postponed because of Bridget's death, so Caleb retained custody of the children. Melissa was still not allowed to see the children unsupervised, but as Caleb became increasingly depressed, he could no longer honor this agreement. The children were sometimes allowed to stay with Melissa for up to a week, because Caleb thought the children would benefit from the company of Melissa's other children. Part of the reason for this decision was probably that Caleb had started drinking again. He didn't want his children to see him drinking, and when he was at his worst, it was also difficult for him to look after his children. Caleb's depression started to ease over time, but Melissa wasn't happy about this. Caleb realized that he himself had broken the rules of the custody agreement by letting Melissa see the children, a situation that Melissa took advantage of by telling the judge that Caleb had not honored the agreement. The judge decided that Melissa would see the children on weekends from now on. However, this was only a temporary solution that would last until the end of August 2013. After that, custody would return to Caleb, and Melissa would only have supervised access to her children. On August 22, 2013, the children were due to pass from Caleb to Melissa again, and Caleb had started flexing his muscles in the custody agreement. He was coaching his daughter's baseball team that night, and her team was playing a game. After the game, Melissa picked up the kids and Caleb went home alone that evening and called Corinda, who was supposed to go to the game. It was Corinda's understanding that Caleb had been drinking, 
He was annoyed, and they argued on the phone for a while, until Caleb said he was going to bed and switched off his phone. He did this every night because he slept lightly and was easily woken up by sounds made by the phone. The next morning, Caleb didn't show up for work, which was in no way typical of Caleb. After a few hours of waiting, one of Caleb's colleagues went to his home to check that everything was okay. The worker met a cleaner at Caleb's house who said he had only cleaned downstairs and didn't know if Caleb was upstairs. Together, they went into Caleb's bedroom and found Caleb lying in his bed. When Caleb didn't react, they called 911 and both the police and an ambulance arrived. Caleb was dead. This time, the investigation into the death was fast-tracked. The coroner quickly concluded that Caleb was the victim of a crime. He had probably been strangled to death. Police wondered if it was really possible that three adults had died under unrelated circumstances within a relatively short period of time under the same roof. It did not take long for the police to decide that all three deaths should now be investigated as murders. The police broke the sad news to Caleb's children, who were with their mom. As Melissa was the only surviving parent, she was granted full custody of the children. Police had been investigating Melissa and Caleb's custody battles and were also concerned about Caleb's suspicions that Melissa and Christopher were somehow involved in Bridget's death. Pretty soon, the police began to shadow Melissa and Christopher and to investigate them as suspects in the case. Meanwhile, the Harrison family's relatives were grieving and in complete shock. They had lost three beloved family members in four years. The house, which had previously been a gathering place for relatives, for parties and other happy occasions, now seemed like a lonely and haunted house. Just weeks after Caleb's death, Melissa and Christopher decided to move out of the neighborhood. They wanted to start over as a family, but the police kept a constant eye on what they were doing. Caleb's relatives were also suspicious and had denied Melissa access to Caleb's funeral. Police had begun to gather evidence against the couple, including the discovery of skin under Caleb's fingernails that matched Christopher's DNA. In Melissa and Christopher's garbage, they also found some latex gloves that had Christopher's DNA on the inside and Caleb's DNA on the outside. In January 2014, police went to Christopher and Melissa's home to arrest them on suspicion of Bridget and Caleb's murder. It was difficult to connect Bill's murder to the whole case because his death had barely been investigated and the body could no longer be autopsied because Bill had been cremated. During questioning, Melissa cried and said that she did not know anything about any deaths. She said that she had long had a falling out with her in-laws, but that she would never have been able to hurt any of them and had never wanted any of them dead. Christopher was questioned for 13 hours, and at the end of the interrogation, he confessed to killing both Bridget and Caleb. He said that the motive behind killing Bridget was the custody issue. He thought that his wife would have a better chance of getting custody if Bridget was dead. Christopher explained that he had gone to Bridget's address to deliver a letter, a letter she had refused to accept earlier in the day when Melissa had dropped by. When Bridget refused to accept the letter this time, Christopher forced his way into the house. Christopher described hitting Bridget a few times on the head and then pushing her hard in the neck and throat area until she collapsed on the floor.
Christopher told the investigators that he had not realized that Melissa and Caleb's son would find the body, and now he felt terrible that the boy had been the one to find his grandmother dead. To kill Caleb, Christopher had stolen the key to the house from Melissa's son. He had sneaked into the house at night when Caleb was already asleep in his bedroom. Christopher had first punched Caleb hard in the stomach, which woke Caleb up. Christopher had then knocked Caleb against a bookshelf and eventually strangled him to death. Caleb had a sleeping mask over his eyes, so he had not recognized his attacker. Just before his death, Caleb pleaded with Christopher to stop and said he would give him money if Christopher would just back off. Christopher was also asked about Bill, but he said he didn't know anything about it and claimed he hadn't hurt Bill. Melissa also knew nothing about Bill's death. During questioning, Christopher maintained that Melissa had no knowledge of his actions. When Melissa and Christopher were being transported out of the town, they were intentionally put together in a locked room for a short period of time. During this short period, Christopher manages to tell Melissa that he takes the blame for her actions and has not told the police about her involvement in the case, as he wants her to be with the children while he's in prison. Thanks to the footage, Melissa was also charged with the murders of Bill, Bridget, and Caleb. The police searched Christopher and Melissa's computer and found some rather alarming Google searches, such as how to easily kill someone without getting caught, if a grandparent has custody and dies, who gets custody, and how long do you have to strangle someone before they die. The police never found out who had done the searches. The computer was used by both Melissa and Christopher, so either party could have done the searches. This was ultimately irrelevant, because the searches could not be used as evidence in a court case. The trial was a long time coming and finally began in September 2017. According to the prosecution, the link between the custody disputes and the killings was clear. Bridget was killed just days before the custody dispute was due to go to court, and Caleb was killed shortly before the custody agreement was due to become unfavorable to Melissa. The prosecution argued that Melissa and Christopher had planned the acts together, but that it was Christopher who physically carried them out. The prosecution also stated it was possible that Melissa and Christopher had thought that they would gain something financially from the Harrison family's death, probably something to do with the inheritance for Melissa's children, but I could not find any further information on this. The prosecution presented the DNA evidence I mentioned earlier and the snippets of the conversation between the couple that the police had recorded while they were locked up together. The recordings clearly showed Christopher and Melissa talking about the murders and how Christopher had decided to lie to the police about Melissa's innocence. In one clip, Christopher told Melissa that he had confessed, to which Melissa answered, The day after you told me about Bill and Bridget? Christopher replied, No, about Bridget and Caleb. This recording suggests that Christopher and Melissa were also behind Bill's death. According to information obtained by the prosecution, before his death, Bill was told by a friend that Melissa and Christopher were moving out of town and taking the children with them. The prosecution's theory was that Bill had been killed so that he would not foil their plan. However, as mentioned above, since there was little investigation into Bill's death, the prosecution had little evidence to prove that Christopher and Melissa were guilty.
The trial lasted over three months. At the end, a jury found Christopher guilty of the murder of Bridget and Caleb. Melissa was found guilty of Caleb's murder. Charges for Bill's murder were dropped and Melissa was found not guilty in Bridget's case. Both were sentenced to life imprisonment with at least 25 years before they can apply for parole. It was decided that Melissa's six children would live with one of her relatives. Caleb and Melissa's two children were to live with the same relative, although Caleb had requested in his will that his children live with his cousin. The cousin had also applied for custody of the children, but for some reason, the children ended up with Melissa's relative. Melissa and Christopher have since divorced. Subsequently, several of the people involved in the deaths have admitted to the mistakes they've made during the investigation. Although some still claim that they did the best they could and had nothing to gain by being sloppy or deliberately overlooking things. However, there has been speculation that Melissa, whose relatives worked in the police force, was somehow able to influence the investigation. In retrospect, of course, one might wonder whether the police or anyone else should have suspected murder when Bill was killed. Personally, I believe that alarm bells should have been ringing when Bridget died and the investigators should have been able to link the custody dispute to the deaths. It seems unfair that three people had to die before this was stopped. That's all I have to say this time. I hope it was interesting for you. My name is Lainey Hobbs, and this was Tracing Darkness. The podcast was originally written by the talented Finnish podcast host Tilda Loxonen and adapted into English by Podster. Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll be tracing the steps of another interesting case. <laughs>